welcome to the Love Your Life Project, a gentle guide to living a wholehearted, meaningful life. In these trying times, listen to stories, poems, musings, mystical wisdom to inspire you, bringing a little more light to your day. I'm Anuramana. Hello again, my beloved friends. It's lovely to be back with you. And I felt today to follow up on a thread that was addressed in the previous episode. And that is the relinquishing, or should I say, the stripping away of certain parts of the egoic structure that were firmly in place, which is to say the the falling away of identity of the small self. And I will say it's an ongoing process here, probably for most of us. I, Even with all that was taken after the fall last year, there's still a deep attachment to chocolate, for instance. <laughs> that doesn't seem to be diminishing anytime soon. But it feels to elaborate just a bit more on this issue of of identity, of the self that we imagine ourselves to be, the name we go by, the family we belong to, the friends we have, the relationships that we're allied with or allied to. And, and though alliance can be a great thing, there's always the next step of leaning into the larger invitation to embrace the immensity of our true nature, which of course includes our human self, but is infinitely larger than that. I heard, I think it was Pema Chodron, the Buddhist teacher, speaking recently about this life as a kind of bardo. You know, the the Buddhists speak of bardo as that liminal space between death and the next life. Um, And if I understood her correctly, she was saying that this life is really its own bardo. So my my best guess as to what she's saying is that, you know, it's a brief tour, this life. It's a brief tour of duality and a chance for our souls to evolve between what I might call one death and another death, or maybe it's the same death. Um, we're just passing through here. It's such a brief stint here in these human bodies on planet Earth. And I've often thought of it, actually, this life as a kind of purgatory. You know, growing up Catholic, of course, it was drilled into us that purgatory would happen after we die as a way to absolve ourselves of our sinful life. (laughs) But now I feel like, at least in these past 20 years, Um, And in general, when you kind of embark on a spiritual journey, let's say, we, uh, towards self-awareness, we have to purge out all the sticky bits that are really illusory, really, but we still cling to them for safety. And so it feels like we get to do purgatory 
while we're still here on earth. I remember a writer in Ireland many years ago, he decided to do some research and travelled around Ireland asking people how they greeted each other. You know, how are you? How are you doing? And I'll never forget that one man, when he was asked, like, how's it going? How are you doing? He said, ah, to be honest, he said, I'm struggling between immensities. (laughs) I'm struggling between immensities. I just love that, you know, um, that we are in this kind of what feels to be immense life that we, we really cling to so deeply when there's so much more unfolding that transcends this, this world of time, of distance. So they're all kind of human constructs, really. And we belong to timelessness, really, to that vast ocean of existence, of consciousness. I'd like to read you a a short excerpt from something Albert Einstein wrote. He said, A human being is part of a whole, called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. He, we, experience ourselves, our thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of our consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circles of compassion, to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Our belongingness to the whole of nature in its beauty. It reminds me actually, just as I was reading this to you, of of something that came in during this winter sojourn inside. You know, we, we tend to, those of us who appreciate nature, speak about its beauty, its grandeur. You know, we're uplifted and delighted by the gifts, really, of this natural world. But I was amazed when I was just looking out the window for the millionth time at a sliver of sky through the tree branches and feeling how nature, nature just is. It simply is. It's not this or that. It just is the same way that we are. I am the I amness before we append uh, a description, a descriptor to who we really are. If we just kind of strip away all of the adjectives, all of the adverbs, and just go back to the essentialness, the nature of isness. Um, and so it was very revealing to me. Um, even though I still exult in the beauty of nature. Of course I do, and we all do. It's, it's an amazing gift, but I think its gift is to invite us to return back 
to our true nature. You know, we feel so much more peaceful and calm when we're out in the woods or sitting by a stream, mostly because we don't have to defend our identity. We don't have to be someone other than just be ourselves and sit there in the beauty of nature. That we don't have to measure up or, you know, buy into some sense of who we are or who we believe others think we are or who we imagine others think we are. And that brings me to the next subject around this, which is, you know, how societally and culturally we're kind of indoctrinated with this need to be seen in a certain way and we kind of construct and adapt our identity our imagined identity to to work within that framework of how we want to be viewed and it got me thinking about um some of the names I've been called over the years, um, I had to smile, you know, when I was thinking about this. One healer, oh, many years ago, when my body was really kind of battered from the accident that happened um, back in Ireland, um, I remember this healer, quite a famous person, and he was doing what you might call acupressure, kind of pressing really hard on certain points in the body, but but really with great force. And I was quite thin and probably delicate, pretty fragile at that time. So I would wince or gasp at times as he was pressing and holding. And he called me a sadist's dream, a sadist's dream. <laughs> Uh, I can laugh now. It wasn't funny at the time. It was quite insulting. And then my my doctor here in Shasta, when I saw him uh, earlier this year, he took one look at my foot and said, oh, you're an orthopedic nightmare. <laughs> so I'm giving the medics a run for their money. But of course, it's just how they view things. We're always being mirrored back, you know, what we really believe about ourselves from others out there. So even though that wasn't pleasant to hear when I was vulnerable, now I can just smile about it. There's less a kind of adhering to how anybody else might see me, because really it's Everybody's kind of experiences filter through their own perception. So it's really got nothing to do with us, with me. And so one of the the big kind of triggers, I would say, for many of us in how we imagine we're viewed in the world or want to appear to others in the world is this idea of aging. You know, the body... Um, decomposing <laughs> really over time um, and I had quite a quite an interesting and humbling experience recently when a woman uh, I don't know very well actually she's my hairdresser who lives about an hour away and I rarely see her maybe every maybe twice a year and surprisingly she called me out of the blue recently and said that her stepdad 
was wanting to have a relationship and she had thought uh, of me and um, you know she kind of outlined all of his qualities and then the kicker was she said he's 80 years old (laughs) and even though I've dated much older men in my youth um, as we're getting up there now um, I think such a big age difference makes makes a big difference. Um, I just recently turned 64. Um, So anyway, I was left wondering how old she thinks I am, how old I look. And so I had some work to do around that. (laughs) But I have to say the biggest laugh I've had recently, it came up when I was, I must have been looking at my injured, or I should say healing ankle Uh, it's so much better than it was but it's still really swollen Um, and as I looked at it I just burst out laughing remembering a poem that a man once wrote for me it was quite a few years ago and the first lines are oh slender ankled one in cashmere if you would look my way just once I would follow you into desire And beautiful as those lines are, they no longer apply to this body. (laughs) Maybe if I was a bit younger, that might sting a bit, but it just makes me smile now. You know, this body is such a, a fleeting drop in the ocean of eternity, of consciousness. And I, I'd like to share a poem with you by Mark Nepo about this very subject, which apparently he has Uh, looked into himself. It's called Thinking Like a Butterfly. Monday, I was told I was good. I felt relieved. Tuesday, I was ignored. I felt invisible. Wednesday, I was snapped at. I began to doubt myself. On Thursday, I was rejected. Now I was afraid. On Saturday, I was thanked for being me. My soul relaxed. On Sunday, I was left alone till the part of me that can't be influenced grew tired of submitting and resistance. The part of me that can't be influenced grew tired of submitting and resisting. So Monday, I was told I was good. By Tuesday, I got off the wheel. By Tuesday, I got off the wheel. I wonder how long any of us will just stay on that hamster wheel, going round and round contorting and conforming ourselves to meet the expectations of the world, of others, and even of our our small self, our human self. I mean, it's still part of the journey, and I don't want to feel like there's judgment there. I think this is why we're here. We live, we learn, we let go. And I've been really looking forward to sharing this little tidbit with you. (laughs) I happened to be listening to a conversation 
between the spiritual teacher Adi Ashanti and his wife Mukti. They did a whole kind of series, a podcast on what they called illumined relationship, just about their relationship. And a lot of it was in terms of kind of non-duality and how they approach things, but not with a lot of specifics. So some of it was a bit too theoretical for me. But what I loved in the middle of this long conversation they were having, Adi Ashanti said to his wife, he just got quiet and said to his wife, speaking about their relationship, he said, when you enter the room, my presence brightens. When you enter the room, my presence brightens. Isn't that so beautiful? Imagine if we approached others, if we approached all of life with love, with an open heart. How much more luminous this life would be. Imagine how many people, animals, birds, trees, flowers, whose presence you've already brightened by sharing your own presence, which is to say, your open heart. Which is to say, meeting something fresh, coming to someone or something without agenda, but just coming from a kind of open-heartedness, open-mindedness, which allows for infinite possibilities. You know, knowing can be a kind of numbing, a kind of anesthetic, really, of possibility, because it's built on what's already past, and isn't alive anymore, except as a story. And one of Ramana's main teachings is self-inquiry, which is really the suggestion to turn inside and question, not take for gospel what any person or book says, but to ask for yourself, who am I? Who am I really? Who am I really? Beyond this temporary bag of bones, beautiful as it may be. And there probably won't be an answer to who am I, but over time, the pieces that you really aren't, the ones that are temporary, that are illusory, they arise and fall away. I remember Samuel Beckett wrote a play called Pa-moi, Pa-moi, which translates from the French as not me, not me. So we can get to the true jewel of who we really are by a, a process of elimination, but that's only one way. And so I'd like to just share a poem that I wrote many years ago when I was spending a lot of time delving into self-inquiry. It hasn't been a natural path for me. I'm much more of a devotional devotional nature, which is the other path that Ramana recommends. But self-inquiry has really some amazing benefits and possibilities. So here's the poem, aptly titled, Who Am I? Dip your heart in the golden question, and the ocean of knowing will yield its nectar. 
what has always been you, will disrobe, will unveil itself, so you may marry your beauty, your singular truth, so you may become that one love that has waited lifetimes, that has never, ever abandoned you. Fall into me, lay down the past, let your mind be free of its shackles, so you may shine as that light, O illumined one, your very birthright for eternity. So you may shine as that light, O illumined one, your very birthright for eternity. You know, I think just approaching with the curiosity of a child or with what the Buddhists call beginner's mind, just looking into the possibility of of reacquainting yourself with the beauty of who you really are, who you've always been, and will continue to be long after this body has returned to dust. So I'll wrap this up with a few lovely lines by Kay Coggin, who says, If only we tasted our own essence from birth. If only we tasted our own essence from birth knew the transformations to come, were all part of the becoming. If only we knew the transformations to come, were all part of the becoming. And I'm so glad to be part of that becoming alongside you. So, my dearest companions, on this wild, miraculous, mysterious path, no path. (laughs) I'll sign off now and leave you with so much love. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with others. And if you'd like to hear more, You can find me on my website, anaramana.com. And also on there is a link to become a member of my Patreon family, where for a donation, I offer additional gifts and bonuses, like guided meditations and private Zoom calls. Much love to you. Till next time.